true believers. My name is Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. This is episode 45 of the show. And normally, this is where I would say, hey, here we are in the calendar. This is the month that we're in. We're going to tackle some comics. Well, we are going to tackle some comics today. We're doing something a little bit different. This episode is entitled From Out of the Golden Age. Because we have gotten to a very special moment in Marvel Comics history. Michael, what happens in today's comic? Well... We decided that, you know, we're really moving along too fast here and we're going to catch up with modern comics pretty quickly. So we're going to dial it back to uh, 1939, right? That's what we decided to do. (laughs) No, what happens in 1964 where we're at is the debut of my personal favorite superhero, the Marvel Universe's favorite superhero, if we're talking like, you know, in continuity, Captain Frickin' America. I was thinking in Avengers number four. Frickin' America is what I was thinking, in a, too. In Avengers number four, that's what happens. Yep, the Avengers number four. So, since he is coming from out of the Golden Age, we thought we would take some time uh, and spend some time in the Golden Age as well. Uh, we're going to go to the origin stories of the three prominent Golden Age heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, in order of publication, well, poop. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, two of them are published at the same time, kind of, but one of them is earlier in the comics. So, The Human Torch, Namor the Submariner, and Captain America. In order of reading comic books left to right, Human Torch is first, then Submariner, then Captain America. Right. It is a little bit weird because um, Namor's story was actually intended, it was actually created for publication earlier. Really, I did yeah. not know that. We'll talk more about that when we before. get to uh, when we get to that com- that story. Um, but yeah, the big three, like DC, has their big three that has remained their big three throughout their entire DC life of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. But Marvel had like a Golden Age big three, who's not so big anymore in terms of three. Um, but certainly, I think at the time, Torch, Submariner, and Cap were like their golden ticket, right? Yeah, all through the timely era. And in the Atlas era, when they tried to revive superheroes, because that was starting to become the end thing with the revival of the Flash and everything, mm-hmm. they're like, okay, let's go get our three. And they made new stories for Torch and Namor and, and Captain America. And they did not catch on. And the nope. effort died on the vine six months in. Yeah. I guess superheroes just were not uh, – well, I guess Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman were doing well because they were doing um, – you know, what, how would you describe those stories? Everybody always says imaginary tales, but it was more than just that. But it, yeah, was, it, was, I mean, it was very G-rated, you know, no particular consequences or violence kind of yeah, stories. I wouldn't say necessarily they were even doing well, but they were continuing. Mm-hmm. They were continuing to be published. They were being successful enough to exist. Um, but the superhero branch of the comics industry at that time was only one of many branches. You had humor comics, you had cart, uh, cartoon character comics, you had lots of romance and Western comics, because all of those things could be done really easily. Um, no horror. By actually, the time that, the that they're trying to revive superheroes, and what's that? I was going to say, I was saying horror, but then I realized, no, no horror. That's That went away. Yeah, by the time we get to the point where they're trying to revive superheroes in like 1956, it is post-Wortham, post-beginning of the Comics Code. And so EC Comics all but is dead. The only thing that exists now is Mad Magazine. 
Mm-hmm. All the horror is gone. Um, but we're we're way, way earlier than that. We're going back to August 31st, 1939. Yes. Marvel Comics number one, a series which will become Marvel Mystery Comics, and then way down the road will become Marvel Tales. But the there is one single issue that is called Marvel Comics. And this is the debut uh, uh, publication for Timely, right? Uh, yeah, this is their first comic. They will do Mystic Comics and other sort series. Um, they will have, you know, title feature books like Human Torch and Submariner, but uh, most of their comics are, um, anthology books. And this is the first one. So quick Superman fan on the fly. What was, what was Action Comics number one's debut date? It was May 5th, 1938. Okay. So they've had over a year of, Hey, these superhero things are working out. So let's do our own kind of, uh, hindsight. Superman's a year old. Batman is in his early days. Um, he doesn't have his, he only, he's only has detective comics right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1939. So 1940 is whenever like all American comics and flash comics and all of that get started up. That hasn't happened yet. So timely is dipping their toe into a very shallow well at this point. Okay. So like John said already, we're going to talk about the first three stories of, uh, you know, human torch Submariner. And Captain America, and then we're going to get back to where we're we left off and get to Avengers number four. As always, we take turns summarizing, and I get the first story tonight. So I get Human Torch, and it came out in Marvel Comics number one on sale date August thirty first, nineteen thirty nine, with a cover date of October of that same year. It was eventually titled, originally had no title, eventually titled The Origin of the Human Torch. Very clever title, and. Like comics of of those times, it was all done by one dude. In this case, Carl Burgos. And it starts out with a professor named Horton, who I'm constantly trying to call Hammond because that makes sense. But it's Horton. And he has invented a robot that will eventually be named Hammond. Um, except one problem. He invites his friends over to tell him the problem. And he shows them it's like this human guy in a blue outfit. And he's in this um, glass case. And he's like, but check this out. If I introduce oxygen and the robot catches on fire, becomes a human torch. Doesn't dissolve or burn away or anything, but he's just on fire. And Horton cannot figure out why. And his com- his community of scientists react very much the way Hank Pym's community of scientists reacted. You're crazy. This is dangerous. Don't do this. So that he goes to like, I think they even maybe take him to court or something. He gets pretty much ordered to deal with it. He agrees finally. He doesn't want to destroy him, but he agrees um, to bury him. So they put him in like this capsule and they fill it with cement and they put him in the ground. And that way, you know, if they ever, if Horton can ever figure out what this deal is with the fire, maybe he can just dig him out. Before he can do that, though, apparently there was a slow leak and eventually enough Oxygen gets into this cylinder that they buried the robot in, and there's an explosion. And Horton looks out his backyard, ah, don't, come back. But nope, the robot is free. He's on fire, and he starts running away. He runs through the city. Someone dubs him, it's a human torch. Very much like, oh, look at that Hulk. You know, same idea. So now he has a name. He's the human torch. Um, Some firemen come by. They try and stop him. They shoot him with water. And unlike Johnny Storm, it does nothing to him. It just, he says it tickles and he kind of has some steam going on, but it doesn't put him out. Um, 
he decides to put himself out because he kind of can tell he can say he doesn't really have like I don't know he's a robot so he doesn't really have memories or personality per se but he could tell that he's you know causing problems and hurting people so he finds a pool and he jumps into it well it happens to be the pool of a gangster and the gangster recognizes the robot because it was in the papers during the court case and all that stuff so the gangster comes up with this I what's that nope oh sorry this gangster comes up with an idea to uh, capture him. Um, I don't know. He has all this ability to like suck the air out of his pool and put him in, encase him in it and stuff. And so he does that, and the human torch is stuck in there. And he's not—he's a gangster who uh, uh, does like the protection racket. So he goes to this big warehouse and he says, "Hey, you're gonna give me your money, or something bad's gonna happen." And the guy says, "No way, get out of here." So he's like, "Fine, I'll show you something bad that's gonna—excuse me, something bad that can happen." And he takes the human torch, who's sealed up, um, and just the robot again. And he brings him over to the guy's warehouse and pretty much lets him loose. So the human torch kind of wakes up again, and he's surrounded in this warehouse that he's burning to the ground. And he realizes that the guy who captured him is just using him. Um, so he goes back to confront him. He easily like burns into the guy's warehouse. The guys try and stop him. He beats them up. The, the the gangster guy, like all villains of this era, has a secret underground lair. He tries to escape into that, but the Human Torch easily melts through the door there, too. Um, meanwhile, all this commotion has brought the police and the firemen and even Professor Horton. Um, and Horton shows up just, in, just as this gangster guy, whose name escapes me, uh, is going to sh- throw a vat of uh, um, um, nitro glycerin, I guess, nitro something, at the Human Torch. So Horton tries to stop him. The Human Torch jumps in the way to save Horton. And it turns out this nitro stuff actually douses his flame, um, at which point the police try and shoot the robot. But he's still hot and the bullet melts much like Johnny Storm. Um, the robot then goes after the gangster some more, finally subdues him. Um, well, no, actually, he's about to subdue him, and then the guy, like, grabs some more acid or something, and, and the right. human torch, the human torch like, hits him and blows it up, and the guy dies. Um, also very 1939. So then the torch turns himself in. He explains to the court that, you know, he was a victim of circumstance. This guy was just using him. He's a robot. He was born yesterday. He doesn't know anything. And by the way, now he can control his power because that nitro stuff that was thrown on him has allowed him to be able to turn his flame on and off. So he goes home with Professor Horton. And Horton's at first kind of nice about him being there. But then he starts, like, rubbing his hands together and has this Machiavellian look in his eye and starts talking out loud about how he can really cash in on his new robot invention. And... Uh, the human torch decides he doesn't like the sound of that. So he's just going to ditch his creator and become an adult. And he flies through the roof. And that's the end of his story. Tune in next month, kids, for more human torch picture action stories. You know, I'm really glad that you had this one because um, I check out of this story once it, once he leaves. <laughs> once the torch is free uh-huh. and just heads out, I'm... Like, I'm ready for the next thing, but then he runs into random mobsters who find him in a pool, and and the story just goes into plot-driven shenanigans after that. It's funny because I I wish I could remember where they published this, but I'm pretty sure Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross, prior to Marvel's, did like a, this is what Marvel's could be, 
story. Uh huh. And the entire story is basically the part where Human Torch is buried and what he's thinking about when he's under the ground. And then when he escapes, that's the end of the story. Because it's like, yeah, we don't need the rest of this. That was the story. Yeah, that was the story. There is a um, there is a Marvel's issue zero. Oh, maybe that's where they published it. It has yeah, yeah. him um, like while he's on display. That too, but at some point he's underground and you can see like his thoughts and they're like feeding him information and it may be yeah I don't remember all the details of the, of the thing but yeah yeah so that that's probably Marvel's number zero that you're remembering yeah and the last page is a splash page of him running through the city and everybody's saying oh Human Torch is loose and they just leave it there because why tell the rest of the story right and like I've read other Human Torch stories mm-hmm. and they are occasionally more interesting than this because mm-hmm. um, I, I did you know go through a pretty concentrated effort at reading all the golden age comics at one point. So I, I, I read a number of golden age human torch stories, but often, often it's like this same kind of thing, which is kind of the way it is with a lot of golden age stories. It is kind of the way it is with a lot of golden age stories. You know, it's interesting because the way we use the word golden age doesn't really apply that much to the golden age of comics. <laughs> you mean the way we make it sound like it was the greatest time? Yeah. 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 Like, like the golden age, like El Siglo de Oro, the golden age of Spanish literature is like this huge time um, of, of innovation and creating cultural forms of, of, of storytelling and all this other stuff. And the golden age of comics is when they were still trying to figure all that crap out. I think what's golden about it is they were figuring all that crap out. So that's just where it gets figured out to a degree. And this is also where a lot of characters we know and love now started. It's where they started. So we love them from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now. But a lot of these guys have been around this long. And it was a term that was used to, to distinguish it. But I mean, the term Golden Age was developed in the 60s to distinguish it from the, the resurgence of superheroes. Mm-hmm. And so it was very much, you know, the, the the nostalgia of comics readers at the time who had been reading comics back in the day. They, you know, they're thinking back on their childhood. That was the golden age, and now it's the Marvel age of comics, which was the first term for the '60s. Yeah, um, yeah. If we let everybody rank it themselves, then we'd have a different golden age for everybody's point of view. But I did see someone say online that the golden age of Marvel and the golden age of comics are two very different eras. <laughs> the golden age of Marvel is the 1960s. The golden yeah. age of comics is the 1940s. Well, and you can argue this. You could argue this is timely. But uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm not here to to like slag all over golden age comics because actually the other two stories we're going to talk about I really do enjoy. And the first few pages of this have some really good ideas in them, and I really like the the the. I mean, it's 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 a little bit weird that for some reason he has a skin on this android that is, you know, <laughs> able to burst into flame when it comes into contact with air. But that happens in chemistry sometimes. So that's – I've never read this and I've never read the Submariner one. I haven't read nearly as much Golden Age as you, I suspect, a.k.a. I have not read as much anything as you, I suspect. But – I've read a lot, not a lot, a little bit of Superman. I've read a little bit more of Batman. I've read Captain America. And that's about it. So I was looking forward to reading these. I don't think it came to me. It didn't come off to me as like anything worse than I've read in Golden Age, especially how early this is. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think the the pool bit, you know, his ability to just capture this human torch thing and 
immediately and like I don't know that was all kind of a head scratcher but otherwise it's pretty standard fare um, but yeah like you said I was thinking about like how I take for granted concepts of characters because I've known them forever so they're familiar to me mm-hmm. but at what point did they come up with this idea like or Carl Burgos I apparently came up with this idea of like I'm going to create a robot and that's not good enough no no this robot will burst on fire if he's exposed to oxygen. Like, where'd that come from? That yeah. is actually pretty weird. I'm used to it, but it's weird. Because um, one or the other would be good enough. A guy who could be the human torch is awesome. A guy who's a robot is awesome. He married the two. And I guess maybe he's trying to figure out, okay, so being able to turn on fire is not something that you would normally put in a robot. So where would the where would but he, that's the story. he wants to tell the story about somebody who can go on fire and fly around? Okay, yeah. so it's a synthetic person because that's the only way that could happen. Obviously, a human boy could not go on fire and survive. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's where the robot part came from. Yeah, that could be the thinking. And then you have okay, well, you wouldn't just build a robot that way. Why would you build a robot that can catch on fire? So it's an accident. It's mm-hmm. an accident that it happens, and I that makes sense, and that's. That's great, you know, fantasy sci-fi storytelling. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a consternation for the guy who invented him. And, you know, this council of scientists who later will reject Henry Pym's science-changing uh, serums, um, they're not too happy with his uh, his his fiery robot either. You know, the, for, for being a council of scientists, they're big fuddy-duddies. Yeah. Yeah, they don't like anything amazing, apparently. Or astonishing. But what what's interesting about this is like uh, he doesn't talk until he escapes. Yeah, he does, he does raise his hand once, but you're not really sure that he's even um, got a brain or anything. Is he just a statue? He says well, he's a robot. He actually only moves when he's on fire. Like if you look at those those two pages, uh-huh. whenever he's not on fire, he is perfectly still. It's like he's only animate when he's a flaming human torch. Yeah, and he is a human torch for the rest of you know. The rest of the story, except for a few brief scenes. Well, I'm wondering if, like, they had him talking at this point, if burying him alive would have seemed horrific. So they didn't do that. Oh, because he's a person, like, pleading for his life. Yeah, it's like, hey, guys, can you let me out of here? No, we're going to put you in concrete and bury you forever. Oh, Oh, that would have been horrific. You're right. You're right. Okay. Also, briefly, on the cover, honestly, Uh I saw this cover for the first time when Uh I was with my dad in a comic book store, and I saw... um, Marvel's first collection that they published of Golden Age stories. Mm-hmm. And this cover was on the cover of that collection. That's the first time I ever saw Marvel Comics number one. And I and I think it's actually an Alex Ross redo of this cover um, that's on mm. the co- that, that collection. It might yeah. not be. But I never processed it until relatively recently that this cover is the Human Torch. Really? Like, yeah, this is a this is a more monster interpretation, but this is the Human Torch. This is mm-hmm. a guy on fire coming through a burning wall yeah. while the bad guy shoots at him. It's Danny Kay. What do you, I don't know what that means. Oh, you don't know who Danny Kay is? No. Oh my goodness. What's a Danny you gotta, Kay? You got to do more than just read comic books. I do or the read comic books. You've you never seen who, like you don't know who Amethyst Garnet and Pearl are? No, I don't. <laughs> you never seen like White Christmas or anything like that? Oh, it's been a long time. Danny Kay. Okay, anyway, he just looks like Danny Kay to me on this. I don't know why. Is he an old-timey actor? Yeah. 
All you have to do is say he's an old-timey actor. You have to make fun of me. For not I'm sorry. He's Danny Kay. I, maybe maybe I just assume everybody knows who Danny Kay is. Um, it's an okay cover. Uh, very classic, obviously. Right. Very iconic. Um, but yeah, it's just it, think- it's just a more monstrous – like if someone had told him the idea of the Human Torch, he's like, okay, I'll, I'll paint that on the cover. But look at the title banner of the Human Torch. It's the same picture. Oh, yeah, it is. I think it was you, or it could have been someone a long time ago who posted something like Action Comics number one cover greater than Marvel Comics number one cover. Oh, that sounds like something I would post. And then I think I posted back Marvel Comics number one cover greater than New Fun Comics number one cover. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey, you never know. Right. But yeah, it's not quite as iconic as, say, like, you know, a lot of the debut things. It actually looks very pulpy. It is very pulpy. You are correct, sir. Yeah. Um, I'm looking to see if I have anything in here that I wanted to bring up. Um, nothing is really that interesting that I wanted to say. So he, so personality wise, I feel like he doesn't have one, but I also feel like that suits the story because he's a robot and he was born today and he doesn't have one. Yeah. That kind of worked for me. I kind of liked it. I have a feeling 600 issues from now, it'll be the same personality, but for issue one, it worked. He does go from wanting to get away from water in his first freedom scene to wanting more water to put his own fire out. Like he figures out that, hey, staying on fire might not be the best thing. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a word for substances that ignite in air and that is pyrophoric. Okay. And, you know, I was thinking about it because I was thinking about the fact that he's a robot and that this guy accidentally made a robot that sets on fire. And like he probably mixed some sort of mixture for the skin. And there was like some unexpected chemical reaction in the skin skin mixture mm-hmm. that resulted in something pyrophoric. Now, theoretically, that substance in his skin would eventually get used up, and so it doesn't really work. But uh, it, it's it's an idea. Yeah, and I'm not sure why the nitro would have anything to do with anything. Is yeah, I don't even know what nitro is. Nitro is usually a word for something explosive. I thought nitro was like you know the stuff they power cars in to make them go fast. Was that a gas? Yeah. Yeah. But this guy's wielding nitro, nitro like it's a thing you can, I don't know. You can it, it, pour. It's something that can be it can be burned. Mm-hmm. But it apparently has the opposite effect on someone who's already burning. Apparently. I'm amazed that the bullet melting thing happened so far backwards. Now I can't really say that, you know, Stan made up a dumb power for Johnny Storm when it's already here. I had the exact same thought. The idea of metal things melting as they fly toward the torch. Mm-hmm. This goes all the way back to his first adventure. Yeah, right between the eyes, this bullet just melts. So yeah. this was not a Stan Lee invention. This was a uh, Carlos Burgos invention. And I was actually, I really liked his disappointment in his creator at the end of the story there. That was a nice twist. I did, actually mm-hmm. didn't see that coming because I thought, from what little I know of this origin, I thought his creator was like kind of a benevolent Geppetto type. And I don't. No, but I, I, I feel like it may happen maybe once. But basically, the connection between uh, Human Torch and Horton is is done. There's no other real connection there. But I feel like in the late Silver Age, early Bronze Age, when they bring back the original Human Torch, he does go back and try to find his creator. There, there is a story that is told there. I just don't remember what it is. Of the big mm-hmm. three mm-hmm. timely mm-hmm. characters, Human Torch is definitely my weakest in terms of stories that are in my brain. Yeah. Um, and you notice that he's the first one they revived, but they didn't revive the same concept. They altered it and made it different. Yeah. And I've wondered if that's because he does get revived. This guy gets revived in Fantastic Four 
in the 60s, I want to say. Yeah, late but, 60s. But that's more like a movement towards like re- bringing back you know, the actual continuity of the Golden Age, not just the ideas. And nothing really happens with it, does it? Because he gets buried away, and then I don't, I don't, I feel like it's not till like John Byrne and West Coast Avengers that they really start using him again for a while. Yeah, he's more of a, um, he's more of a plot construct because they start doing things with the idea of the Human Torch, like how does Wonder Man exist and how does the the Vision exist, and all this stuff gets wrapped up in the original Human Torch. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So, so yeah, I think because Johnny Storm existed as the Human Torch, he just they didn't need the competition, and unlike Submariner and Cap, this guy doesn't really make a comeback. No, he really doesn't. Um, he does get a sidekick for those who don't know. Uh, it takes Toro. a little while. It's not immediate. But yeah, Toro is this – basically, he's Dick Grayson. He is a circus boy who can turn on fire. And he he is a mutant character. He is one of Marvel's earliest mutant characters. Even in the Golden Age, they think he's a mutant, huh? I think so. He's an inhuman now, but – Yeah, maybe. Well, he doesn't ever go through Terrigen. Terrigenesis. Is no, he- I, think, I think he really is an inhuman, but oh. I could be wrong. I, I could totally just be – not remembering that correctly. But I thought he died. Yeah, well there's always that too. I don't know. I think he comes back in his only real story in quote unquote modern comics is in post nineteen sixty one comics. I think he comes back for one big story and dies at the end. But they may do more stuff with him later, I just don't know about. Yeah, I don't know. My Toro knowledge is very limited. But you said he's like Dick Grayson and I was thinking in my head like pithily that like isn't every sidekick in the Golden Age like Dick Grayson? Because that's why they exist. Yeah. Yeah. You are not wrong. Pretty much. Robin basically started a trend. A trend that people either love or don't love. And not all sidekicks were kid sidekicks. Green Lantern had a cabbie as his sidekick. Uh, that's better. Yeah, Doiby Dickles was a delightful character. Um, he's, you know, comedic relief, obviously, because his name is Doiby Dickles. But um, uh-huh. but he, he's, he's, you know, he's a, he's a cabbie. <laughs> He drives a hack, and you know, Lantern, I can get you anywhere you want. Are you, are you sure that's not Roger the Watcher? It might be Roger the Watcher. <laughs> I only have so many voices. <laughs> um, so shall we move on to the uh, uh, next story in here? The Angel. Import? Yeah, the Angel. No, we'll skip the Angel. Um, although it is worth noting, there are a lot of names from the Golden Age that get brought into the modern comics with completely different uses. Electro was a you know Golden Age character. Black Widow was a Golden Age character. The Vision and the Angel were Golden Age characters, but they're they're all very very different. And 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 the Angel gets referenced in modern Marvel too from time to time, so he might be worth reading. But I didn't read it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, so, so nor- normally, normally, normally when there's two stories in the same book, the same guy summarizes them. But we decided this time, since it's totally different characters, um, that we were going to trade off. So you get Subby. Yeah, I get Subby. So the Submariner, um, this is by Bill Everett. And this is actually Marvel's oldest story. Should I do it until that now or wait till we yeah. get to the art? Okay. Go ahead. Set it um, up. So Bill Everett drew this comic for a completely unrelated publication called Motion Picture Comics Weekly. And what it was going to be is it was going to be a promotional giveaway in theaters. You know, back in the olden days when kids would come to the theaters and watch the cartoons and the Nickelodeons and the, the newsreels and the, the Saturday serials and all that stuff. Um, they were going to hand out comics and it was going to be paid for with advertising. 
Um, but the whole structure of it all fell through. There were only um, seven or eight copies that were done as like a test to like hand out and show people this is what we're going to do. They mm-hmm. never actually did a full print run. Um, and the existence of this comic was forgotten. So they the, the story was not printed. And then whenever they were uh, making stuff, whenever Timely was making stuff for Marvel Comics number one, they bought a few stories from other publishers that had already been sold. And then they used those to start their stuff and brought those, you know, artists over to their team. Um, but the existence of motion picture comics was forgotten until the 1970s. So it was thought for a long time that Marvel Comics number one was Namor's first appearance. And then they found every single copy of this comic in a box in the attic of somebody who worked for the company. Wow. I was going to say, wouldn't it be cool if someone had that? But apparently yeah. you had them all. You had them all. Um, cause they never handed them out to show other distributors what they were going to be doing because the whole thing fell apart. So he had them all and he kept them all and they were in a box, they were in an attic. And so it's just kind of funny cause you know, if you ever study where history comes from, our knowledge of history is built on much shakier ground than people realize it is. And there's just this notion that in 1974 history changed. Our knowledge of Namor's origins is as small as that is a part of history that completely changed by the discovery of these comics. Yeah, I just looked him up on Wikipedia. First appearance, motion picture funnies weekly. And it's just, it's like, wow, wow. no one knew it. And then there was this time where like someone, someone discovers this box of comics and there's a Namor comic in. It's like, what the hell is this? Where did this come from? Why does this exist? And you had to like go and do research and look up the company and look up the people and ask people questions and did Suddenly Bill Everett not up. know it? I'm sure Bill Everett knew it, but no Just one didn't. asks him. No one asks him, yeah. <laughs> they didn't know it was so epic and important at that point. Right. And I, it's not like there are scores of books out there documenting the knowledge. It's just no one knew anymore because no one had talked about it anymore. But anyways, so Submariner's eight-page strip for Motion Picture Funnies Weekly was sold to Timely and then Bill Everett expanded it. And there's a very definite shift between the original story and the extra pages of expansion. And we'll, we'll talk about it when we hit it. Um, but you can tell what's the expanded part of the story and what's what's the original. Um, so, you know, people are diving for gold because that's what they do. And in this comic, there's this ship that's out in like Arctic waters. And they're looking for a salvage ship, the SS... Um, no, they are the SS Recovery, and they're looking for a ship that's sunk. And um, there's some guys down there looking around, and um, they their lines are mysteriously cut by this guy who lives in the ocean, who sees them in their underwater gear and thinks that they're robots of some kind. Um, so he goes and he cuts their lines, he attacks them, he crushes their helmets, and kills them. Brutally murders the two guys. And then he takes them to his kingdom because he figures, you know what? Um, my monarch, my my king might want to see these. So let's go deliver them. And um, along the way, there's this ship up in the water above him. He's like, oh, I don't like that ship. And he blows it up right there. And so he goes to his monarch and says, here, I found these guys. And oh, look, this, this round thing on top isn't the head. It's like a helmet of some kind. <gasps> There are surface people inside. I killed surface people. So that's good, right, King? Because we want to kill all the surface people. We have a war against them. And the surface people is like, yes, we have a war against them. Let your mother tell you all about it. 
And so his mother comes out and she is not a weird looking fish dude. She's a beautiful um, woman. And uh, she's like, okay, so Namor, um, when a man and a woman love each other very much, sometimes one's a surface (laughs) dude and one is a fish girl. And that happens. And they sometimes have a child and it's you. Basically, she had been found by a surface ship 20 years ago. And she decided to use her uh, feminine wiles to work her way into their trust. But instead of betraying them for the purposes of her underwater kingdom, she falls in love with this guy named Roger McKenzie. And um, nature took its course and she had a son named, uh, which she named Namor, which in their tongue means the avenging son, but it's actually just Roman backwards. Um, so yeah, so that's where Namor comes from. And that would have been the end of the story. And so Namor, the avenging son faces the surface men of the world in what promises to be mortal combat, but we need more pages because we're going to put in this new comic. So Namor and his cousin, uh, the beautiful young Dorma go and attack a lighthouse. They figure this lighthouse, it is a, um, it's a beacon for incoming ships. If we destroy it, ships will get uh, shipwrecked and it'll help our cause. So they go and attack the lighthouse. There are people there who fight back, but they succeed attacking the lighthouse. They hop a plane and fly away. And then was like, okay, Dorma, you got this whole plane thing? Because I'm going to go now. Bye. <laughs> and he dives into the water. The end. So that really makes a lot of sense now that you've told me it's expanded. Because when I first read this, I did think, like this Namor the Avenging Sun panel was the end. And then it kept like, on going. Or like one of two stories that and we weren't supposed to read the second story. So I doubted whether I was supposed to keep going, but then I did anyway. Um, yeah. What a great ending. And then, then it keeps going. Yeah. And the art is really different because in the first eight pages, he was trying to do this underwater effect Oy. that doesn't work. Oh. It See, just makes the whole thing hard to read. I haven't read this story either. I've not read any uh namer golden age but i have seen some namer golden age panels and i always thought bill everett looked like a good artist for golden age work you know mm-hmm. as far as the bar golden age bar you got jack kirby and you got bill everett was pretty high up there um but yeah this was not what i think of when someone says bill everett so it was pretty weird the it's, coloring is the co- i think it's the printing of the coloring Coloring's the whole thing off. Coloring's bad. His way of symbolizing or, you know, indicating that they're underwater is to have all these horizontal lines, mm-hmm. which which just make it impossible to read what's going on. And the and the coloring is like a horizontal stripey coloring. It's it's very murky and very hard to understand. Yeah. And everybody's blue. Underwater everybody's blue, but interestingly enough, above water, both Namor and Dorma have regular uh uh, Caucasian skin tones. That's Unlike true. Unlike later when Dorma is blue like Atlanteans. But they also both have weird eyebrows, just like yes. the mom. So that's like an Atlantean thing to have these really long McDonald's looking eyebrows. They inherited it from their Vulcan ancestors. <laughs> yeah. I actually think his mom looks super freaky in this. But that, again, could be just the early artwork and he hasn't figured out how to draw yet. And it gets better. But. Yeah, mom does look a bit weird. I say beautiful one because da- uh, the the king is very definitely a fish dude, and like yeah. does not look like a human face at all. Whereas she looks like you know a made up actress, mm-hmm. made up to look you know exotically frightening, but still a made up actress. Mm-hmm. So what a weird concept! Like I don't know, I I don't feel like 
this is a superhero concept yet. No, it's so, not. It's like a dude. The the idea is every issue or every story, the guy's going to go around and murder more humans. I feel like it's a stance on pacifism. I feel like it's an anti-war stance. It's, you know, we, all of our warmongering is hurting people. Mm-hmm. And they're going to fight back now. Yeah. I'm trying to think of another story um, or another character, though, where, like, we root for him and he's totally not on our side. Yeah, I don't know. I like, don't know either. Like, if, if we, there was a movie about an alien who just went around killing all of us and then in the end we high-fived him. <laughs> you know, it's kind of weird. Like, are we supposed to like Namor or is he supposed to be, like, the alien and aliens where we kind of like him but we hope in the end he loses? Yeah, he, he is the protagonist of the story, so you're meant to be sympathetic, but – I but mean, he's killing human. Like he's he, lit- he's killing them on accident. He thinks there's something else, so let's just kill him. And oops, look, there's humans in here. Well, he killed whatever he th- thought it was. He just didn't realize it was a person. But he also blew up that ship. Yeah. And um. Oh, he wasn't I, upset that they were humans. No, he, he just didn't know. I feel like he's a little bit like Golden Age Superman. Uh huh. Yeah, I can that- see that. You know, and I feel like they almost want him to be because in the opening narration, and this is back in the day when DC was suing everyone who even remotely resembled Superman. Here is a Submariner, an Ultraman of the deep. Don't say Superman. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And he's also, so quote unquote, an alien. He's not human. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's not a champion for human justice. But Golden Age Superman is very anti-authority. He's anti-war. He's anti-everything that would hurt a little person. Good point. He does level city blocks just to make a point. Yeah, he is fighting for the oppressed, and Namor is fighting for his oppressed people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. I don't know. Like, I assume at some point as this Golden Age, Namor goes on, he starts fighting with humans against Nazis and stuff like everybody else. Yeah, it's it's... It, and I've read a, a good stretch of, of Submariner. It's a tense relationship at first. Okay. Um, and he only trusts one or two humans. Like Betty Dean is this police officer, and he comes to trust her, but like as a single person, not because he trusts the humans. Um, and he fights the human torch because Betty Dean asks him to. And that's like in issue eight of the series. Yeah. It's cool. I think the second half is drawn much better. I think the first half is really kind of bonkers in a way, but I also knew this origin already, so so whatever. But yeah, I think he gets uh, better looking as it goes on. Yeah. I don't know story-wise whether it gets better, but... Um, I think Bill Everett's run on Namor is a highlight of go- the Golden Age, certainly mm-hmm. a highlight of Marvel's Golden Age. And how long does he last about? Um, a couple years at least. Okay. So like Jack and it, Kirby and... and uh, Joe Simon lasts 10 whole issues. Uh-huh. And they're out. So he lasts yeah. longer than that. They 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 last exactly one calendar year. Yeah. Um Bill Everett's Namor also has a very continuing story feel to it. Like every plot wraps up at the end, but it feels like the next story is not just another tw- Namor story, but it's like the next thing that happens to this character. Okay. It's one of the few places in Golden Age comics where you feel like you're in the not just adventures of a character but the continuing adventures of a character you know what i mean yeah yeah it feels like that with this he jumps in the water it's the end so Mm -hmm. what happens next exactly but that takes us up to um our main reason for this episode um yeah so we're now doing we're jumping over a year ahead from where we just were so now we're in december of 1940 
Not December 7th, 1941. No, no. A day that will live in infamy. No, no. December 20th, 1940, which is also pretty good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> cover dated March 1941. This is Captain America Comics number one. And we're not going to talk about, unlike Human Torch and Submariner, who only got one story in Marvel Comics number one, Captain America Comics number one gets a lot of Captain America stories. It gets one, two, three, four of them, actually. But we're just going to talk about the first one because we're just going to do the origin, even though you all know it and you all love it. It's eight pages. It's actually got a title called Meet Captain America, written by Joe Simon with writing and pencil credits by Jack Kirby. Though I also think Joe Simon did some penciling, so this website needs to update a little bit. I think that Joe Simon does the initial drawing of Captain America there, but Jack Kirby draws like the rest of the story. I know Joe designed Cap because there's like a sketch, famous sketch of designing Cap. And I know, I think that at least in some of these, he does like some layout, like loose, maybe breakdowns, what they call nowadays. Mm -hmm. And then, and then Jack would come in and do his magic. But who's to say? It's really hard. These Golden Age stories in particular, it's really hard to figure out who did what exactly because they didn't care about credits that much. Right. Um, so let's just say it's by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby and leave it at that because we know that's true. Yeah. Case number one, meet Captain America. So it starts out in 1941. Ruthless warmongers of Europe focus their eyes on a peace-loving America. The youth of our country heed the call to arm for defense. But guess what? It's not just overseas. There's horrible saboteurs here in america the dreaded fifth column and then it shows like some ugly racist racistly depicted looking guys like blowing up a uh, munitions or a you know factory of some kind and so then it cuts to the president and the president is talking to a couple soldiers about this problem these fifth colonists they're just really wrecking things over here even though we're not in world war ii yet we're not officially part of it they're ruining United States stuff. What are we going to do? So the president brings in uh, uh, J. I'm sorry, J. Arthur Grover. Wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> nudge. And he's got a solution. Follow me, soldier guys. So they go to this curio shop, and there's this old lady there, and she's like got a gun, and she's ready to blow them or you know blow them away, except that she recognizes the code and stuff. So she gets through, and really, it's not a curio shop because in the back. Is like a secret laboratory. The woman is not a ugly crone looking girl. She's actually a beautiful woman named X13. She's one of the agents. And then we're introduced to this scientist who looks an awful lot like Albert Einstein. And more importantly, we're introduced to this scrawny, frail guy named Steve Rogers. And everybody's watching. All these like high uppity up guys are watching through this window. And um, they give Steve an injection in his arm. He feels a little fuzzy, and next thing you know, he's hulking out in front of all these guys until he becomes the physical perfect specimen uh, of, uh, you know, humankind. And the scientist is very happy. This guy who eventually we all call Reinstein. In the, actually, I think they call him that in this story. Um, but before he can be too happy, it turns out that the fifth, the fifth uh, 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 whatever they're called, the fifth column. Fifth column. Fifth column is even entrenched in this uh, little uh, demonstration because one of the guys sitting there watching is actually a bad guy. He whips out a gun. He shoots through the glass. It hits Professor Reinstein. Um, Steve Rogers goes into action. 
He grabs the guy and gives him a good sock and a good wham. And the guy gets so scared of being beaten up even more that he tries to escape and he runs into the, like, uh, scientific uh, uh, electronic stuff and electrocutes himself and dies. And that's when we fit, get like the first words of Steve Rogers and he talks about how the guy deserves the fate he got. And he's the only known, he's the only sole survivor of this experiment, this super soldier experiment, um, because Reinstein, like many Marvel and comic book characters, kept it all in his head. So they use him to become a terror in the shadow world of spies and fight the fifth column. And they dress him up as a star-spangled, star star and stripes-clad character named Captain America. And he goes around beating up spies. And they station him in the meantime when he's not beating up spies at a camp um, where we meet um, a little mascot there named Bucky, who befriends Steve or Steve befriends Bucky or both. They hang out. They talk about the paper. Steve smokes a pipe. And Bucky's really enamored with his, these reports of Captain America. Man, I wish I could meet this guy someday. And Steve says, maybe you can, Bucky. Maybe you can. And Bucky's like, what does that mean? He's like, nothing. What are you talking about? But that night, when Captain America is changing into Captain America in his tent, um, Bucky walks in and says, holy cow. And they decide, well, since you know my identity, um, I'm going to have to swear you to secrecy. And I'll let you be my sidekick because... You know, Robin. So they dress him up also in red and blue, but they change his white to yellow and they call him Bucky. And Captain America and Bucky are born. And that's the first story, the origin. And and if you send in 10 cents to timely publication, you can become a member of the Sentinels of Liberty. And if you send 10 cents in to make ours Marvel, we will have dimes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so um, if you've seen the movie, you've seen this story. <sighs> yeah, but I mean, not in a bad way because I, I like whenever there's like such a faithful adaptation, and yet it also felt new. I mean, you can't really change this. This is it. This is perfect, right? What else are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's gonna, no, need, there's no need to update it other than gonna, the FBI part. Yeah, you can change the designation of the woman. You can make it so the woman is actually his girlfriend. Yeah. You can make it so that the uh, the serum has to have Vita rays to, to activate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of the major parts of the story are here. This yeah. is basically it. I mean, they mostly tie it to World War II now and actually going overseas and fighting instead of this whole like invasion on our soil business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and J. Edgar Hoover being the one who's making this happen. So he's like an FBI agent. Essentially, um, but otherwise, it's it just nails it. It's like it's not like FF number one, where if you made a movie, you'd have to completely come up with some new idea than the space race and hijacking a rocket with your family. You right. Know? It, it's 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 interesting because it's timeless in its lack of timelessness. It requires that it be tied to World War Two. Yeah. But because of everything else that's been done with Captain America, you can have him always tied to World War Two. And it works. So brilliant. Yeah. He's one of the few characters where you don't have to have that sliding timeline and reinvent what war he came from. Right. Nick Fury. Nick Fury. Punisher. Uh, pretty much everybody. Iron Man. But eight pages. They took a like, um, and you know, to be fair, this is 1940 now, December of 1940, practically 1941. So superheroes have been going on now. People understand what to do now as far as an origin and a setup, but eight pages to get you 
Like all you need to know, this dude who was scrawny is now buff and super smart and he's the only one. So he's a superhero and they get even like the last page throw in a sidekick because that's obligatory, obligatory in the, the golden age. And they even have like a membership established, you know, all in eight pages. It's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. And the art's fantastic. It really is good. Jack Kirby, I feel like, had his actual height in the Golden Age. Uh, I really like Golden Age Jack Kirby. I feel like his characters are more interesting to look at. Um, He's not doing all the shortcuts that he does later to make his art faster. That's true. I'll give you that. He definitely is trying. I don't know if trying harder is the right way to describe it, but like trying different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally love 60s Kirby the best, but like like I said, I haven't read a lot of Golden Age, but to me, this is so much better art-wise than, well, obviously the two we just talked about, if not Batman, Superman, whatever else I've seen. Yeah, because when it comes down to it, Jerry, uh, Joe Schuster was, was, I mean, not a fantastic artist. He's pretty, I mean, yeah, I don't know. He's good enough, better than Bob Kane. But yeah, but uh, yeah, there's just something very bright and vibrant about this. And it doesn't hurt that he's, you know, dressed in red, white and blue and all that, I guess. But right. And he's blonde. Nobody's ever blonde in these. Um, Chris Evans is blonde. Chris Evans is blonde. But I mean, like Golden Age, they all copy Superman and tall, dark and handsome. Oh, you're right. You're right. They made, they made him blonde. So he's even colorful there. A blonde character. I don't know. I don't have a lot to say other than when I read this, I gushed a lot. So what else can we say about this? Um, they mentioned the Human Torch in the story. And I don't know, last time we talked about this comic, which, by the way, we have talked about this comic before. This is not our first time <laughs> a podcast about this comic book. Nope. Um, way back in the Mighty Shield days. But did we ever decide about the mention of the Human Torch? Do we think that he's talking about the character of the Human Torch in the comic books or the Marvel hero of the Human Torch who's also in comic books? So this is the same thing that happened in our 60s coverage. They start hinting at whether something's a book, like Human Torch is reading a Hulk comic book. And we were wondering, does Stan actually think they're in the same world, or is he just plugging his other books? Right. Only to later decide they're all in the same world. So are they thinking right now that someday they'll be in the same world, or are they just plugging other books? I say the latter in this case. I don't think any of them have any ideas that Human Torch, Submariner, Captain America will all hang out right now. Yeah, I agree. Um, crossovers between comics were unheard of. They just didn't happen. Yeah. And the one between um, Namor and Torch was one of the first. And they, that was made possible because they were already being published in the same book. Just take two stories and turn them into one long story and, and you know, work, have the guys work together. Uh, Whiz Comics did that a few times with some of the characters who are backups to Captain Marvel, like um, Iback, I think, or something. I don't know. Um, some of the characters in Whiz Comics would would have crossovers with each other. Um, but, you know, you didn't really have much in the way of shared universe. And I don't think Captain America shares a universe until all winners comics. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, gets retconned as something else, but that's a whole different story. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think you have. I mean, Torch and Namor are friends. Oh, yes, you do. You do a little bit through the through the Young Allies. Book. Oh, yeah, Young Allies. They all the sidekicks get together. 
that's Bucky and Toro, and the adults will show up in there occasionally. And that's but I, that's the extent of Captain America sharing a universe with anybody else until the one team story he does way later. Right. Well, I mean, it, literally, he says, a character out of the comic books, perhaps the Human Torch. So I think they're just talking about a comic book. Yeah. Uh, but you could read it another way now that we know the difference, if you want to. And you mentioned that they have not J. Edgar Hoover and not Einstein. No, they have Reinstein, who will later be retconned into being uh, Abraham Erskine. Erskine, and that's just a code name, Albert Reinstein. Well, Reinstein, they just call him. Um, and J. Edgar Hoover is just them being like not wanting to spell out who it's supposed to be, but how do we not know who that's supposed to be? Right. So it seems weird that they did that. I think we've talked about that before. Like, why? When do they decide to use real people and not real people? Because this is clearly uh, Roosevelt also as president. Yeah, but he's not named. He's not named, but who else could that freaking profile be? Right. You know? Um, I feel like if there's a fault in this story, it is the ease that with which the whole Bucky thing happens. Yes, that was very much a slap on, it feels like. But like I said, in eight pages, they're trying to just establish everything. And from here, you can just go. Um, but yeah. Feels like they just tacked it on at the end because it was it was an obligation. You have to have a sidekick. Um, so but what a sidekick! Like between Robin and Bucky, those are the two big sidekicks that cause a lot of anguish for the main character in the future. You know, they really are. Like we talk about how like you know Robin started a trend. There are all these sidekicks out there, but you're right that like Robin and Bucky really are the two big ones. Mm-hmm. Those are the two that really really stand out. Um, and other sidekicks are just kind of forgotten about to one extent or another. Um, yeah. No one really talks about our man's Minutemen of America. Kid Submariner no. or whatever. I just made that up. I don't know. Well, he has uh, Namora. Oh, there you go. Yeah. But so, yeah. So speaking of um, – this, this is a big thing that may or may not be true, but isn't Cap the first guy to get his own book out of the gate? Um, Let's see. I'm just putting you on the spot there. I think that's true. I want to say that's true. I hope it's true. No, Superman – Got Superman action comics. 1 was already out by now. No, but he got action comics first. This is a new character in his own book. Actually, yeah. This is saying? the end of 1940. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. We have Superman. We have we have Batman No, by no, now. no, no, no. You're not understanding what I'm saying. Okay. A new character that debuts in his own book. Oh, okay. There's one other that I know of. Okay. I don't know if it's before or after this. Okay. I can do a quick look. But Star Spangled Kid. Okay. He See. was the primary and only feature of Star Spangled Comics. Okay. For like six issues. And Come it on. sucked. Come on. Don't be first. Come on. Um, no hyphen. Yeah. Star Spangled Comics, 1941. Yes. August. Yes. Cap was first. Cap was first. Someone will write in and tell me he's not. But right now, to our knowledge... He's first. Um, and he's punching Hitler on the cover, and he sold a million copies, which was huge at the time and still huge today for a comic book. Yep. Um, and as much as we all look back on that and think, oh, that's so logical and awesome, like, I actually, I think they got, like, hate mail for this because America at this time was not in the war, and some of people did not want to be. So this was a real big, like, bold statement. We, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, who are Jewish, want to punch Adolf Hitler in the face. Mm-hmm. And some mm-hmm. Americans were like, no, no, don't do that. 
Okay, kids out there in the audience, should I burst his bubble? Because there definitely were <sighs> other books. Really? Amazing, Amazing Man comics. Uh, started in 1939, featuring Amazing Man. Uh, I think Marvel itself had done Red Raven comics number one by this point. Bummer. Um, Bummer. That only lasted for one issue. Oh, well. I thought I read that somewhere, but maybe they didn't do the research. Just like me. <laughs> um, but anyways... So, yeah. What other thoughts on Captain America comics before we go forward? I don't know, man. I've read this a lot. I still think it's pretty good, but... Uh, it's Of the three origin stories, I like this one the most. The art is the, is the most impressive. And the story is just straight up forward. Now, the Namor story I also really like. Um, I think just the art suffers a bit on that one. Mm-hmm. The Human Torch story, I like elements of it. I don't actually like the story. And to be fair, this is the shortest story that we covered tonight. This is true. This is very short. It is uh, like eight or nine pages. There's like five other Captain America stories in this book that may or may not hold up as good as this origin story. But this is just straight to the point. Here's Mm -hmm. how Captain America was created. The end. If they had done that with Human Torch, if they had ended Human Torch with him escaping, you would love it. Or, you know, if they ended Namor with him being Prince Namor and not adding any more to it, we might have liked it more, too. Um, Just a little bit of connective tissue. Between this and what we're about to do. Uh, so Torch, Namor, and Captain America, those are Marvel's three biggest characters, although they have a plethora of other characters. Um, but towards the end of the 40s, after World War II, superhero comics dropped in popularity quite a chunk. One of the things that was encouraging large print runs and large sales was sending these books overseas to soldiers to read during their downtime. When the soldiers come home and start to have to work for a living, uh, I don't mean that in the sense that soldiers aren't working, but like they no longer have the same lifestyle they had before. They're not reading comics anymore because they're they're adults, and um, sales started to drop on superhero comics. The uh, um, the sales of Captain America and Submariner and Human Torch all dwindled, and one by one they were canceled. Captain America comics lasted the longest, but then like this weird thing happens where they kept the name Captain America on the cover, but didn't actually have any Captain America stories. Like the backups took over the book. And so Captain America Weird Tales 74 and 75 were the last two issues of the book and Captain America wasn't in them. <laughs> yeah. So that's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Uh, and, and then it just goes away. Yeah. So in the 50s, we talked earlier, superheroes were getting a little bit of a resurgence. So they tried Captain America, Submariner and Torch again. It didn't work. Six months later, they were off the shelves. And that was it until... Um, Late in his career, Stan Lee, getting ready to quit comics, throws one last stab at a superhero team book because Marty Goodman really wants him to try to make a book that will compete with the Justice League of America. And the Fantastic Four number one revitalizes superheroes for Marvel. And um, the Human Torch is brought into that in a completely revamped way. Same power set, same look, completely different story. They very quickly bring back Namor the Submariner and and totally make up a backstory for him of where he's been all this time. Oh, he had amnesia. He's he's you know looking for his family now. But I have no basis for this. But I just feel like it seems likely that Captain America stayed off the shelves for so long because they didn't know how to use him outside of World War II patriotism. 
Yeah, because they tried. Um, with uh, with the Kami Basher cap. With Kami Basher 50s cap, those three issues. Um, yeah, and it didn't work out. No, it didn't. So you're so, probably right. And so they do this big retcon that we'll talk about here in a second to fix it. Right. But even whenever they bring Captain America back as a character, he doesn't get his own story for a really long time. And when he does get his own story, he doesn't really get a plot that moves him forward as a character for a long time after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's weird. It's interesting um, what they do with Captain America. Because for the life of the show, basically, unless we go a lot longer than we, you know, we're not planning on any of the show anytime soon. We're just trying to speak realistically. Shows die sometimes. Um, unless we go for a really long time, we're never going to get like... Tales of suspense, Captain America fighting the sleepers and, and Batrock the Leaper and pursuing a love relationship with Sharon. We're just not going to get that for a really long time. Yeah. You know, but 20 we, years or so. Something like that. Should we dive into the, the Avengers number four? Yes. Let's jump back to present day for us. Present day, 1964. It's January 3rd again. Mm-hmm. Everything new is old again. Boy, we talked about those three stories longer than I thought we would. You know, we really did. We could wrap um, it up right now, but I don't want to because I want to talk about Avengers number four. I do too. I'm talking about Avengers number four, so let's do it. Yeah. No reason not to. There's nobody out there saying don't do it, except yeah. for that one guy, but he's does, we don't listen to him. <laughs> he doesn't even write in. Right. So, Captain America lives again, also in this sensational issue, Submariner. One of the best comic covers of early Marvel right there. Yep. All right. So, we're basically picking up right at the end of issue three. Um, Submariner and the Hulk have lost the fight. Submariner has decided he doesn't need the Hulk anymore. He flies away, goes into the water, and he's just kind of swimming around, angsting over his people. Where are my people? Where have all my people gone? Long time passing. So um, he goes and swims up to the north and meets this tribe of northern natives who are worshiping this block of ice that has the silhouette of a human figure in it. Um, Namor is like, yo, peeps, listen to me. I'm Namor. Run away. Fear me. And he picks up the block of ice without even really caring about the fact that there's a guy in it and just starts like swinging it around and hitting people with it. He drops it in the water and it starts floating around and slowly moves into the Gulf Stream waters, which push it down into southern currents that melt the ice around the figure until it's just this human figure drifting in the water. Well, this all is about a matter of hours that this has all happened in. And so the Avengers are in their ship heading back to New York when they see this body drifting by them. So I guess it really caught a current. It really caught like a, like a sea turtles in finding Nemo current because it caught up to the Avengers. Um, and they find this body out there. And so they go out and get the body and they're like, oh my gosh. And the wasp is the one who, who I guess has read the comic books or remembers the history books or something. She's like, dude, guys, this is Captain freaking America. And like, you're right. It's Captain freaking America. So um, Captain America wakes up. Bucky, Bucky, look out. And he like, goes crazy, starts fighting. Everybody. Where's Bucky? Don't die. I'll save you. And, uh, oh, wait, no, Bucky's dead, and I can't do anything about it. Oh, no, wait, who are you guys? Where am I? What's going on? And they're like, dude, it's 1964. Wake up. You're, you're Captain America. He's like, I am Captain America. I am so lonely and sad. Um, 
So <laughs> you just summarize his character for the next ten years. <laughs> they're like, "How can you be Captain America? Though we haven't seen it since World War II." And he's like, "Throw your hammer at me! I can dodge it. See, I'm Captain America." And he tells a story about how he and Bucky were um, on this mission, and there was this shadowy bad guy who was put a bomb on a plane. It was going to blow up in New York City or something. And so Bucky's like, no, 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 we can stop it, Steve. And he jumps on the plane and he's like, Bucky, don't do that. And he jumps after Bucky onto the plane. But Steve's like hanging off the back of the plane and Bucky's on the plane and he can't get the bomb free. And so um, when the bomb goes off, it takes Bucky with him and sees falling through the air. Oh no, Bucky, you're dead. I'm going to fall in the water and freeze and be sad. And so he falls in the water and he freezes and now he's sad. Um, And so the Avengers, they're like, wow, you really are Captain America. No one else could be that sad. And uh, sorry, I'll stop. (laughs) (laughs) They they get to New York City and the Avengers like, whoa, you stay here for a second, Cap. We'll, We'll field the paparazzi. They're ready to hear about our adventure with the Hulk. And so they go up there, hey, paparazzi. And the paparazzi is like, pop, 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 paparazzi. Until this one, um, this one camera does a flash of light that's not taking a picture. It turns the Avengers to stone. And all the reporters are like, where'd the Avengers go? Why are these statues here? This is some sort of publicity stunt. Let's go find the Avengers. And so they go looking for the Avengers. And Captain America comes out and says, hello, Avengers. <laughs> and they're not there. So the Avengers are just statues, and Captain America's like, huh, first Bucky dies, and then my friends are gone. What is up with this future, y'all? And he just starts wandering around the city, and um, my kids are looking at me. They're hearing me doing this recap. And well, I, I remember this issue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember this issue. And I'm just yeah. listening. Okay. So, I didn't know um, what you were talking about, but then you did the whole uh, camera turns into stone thing. Yes, yes. So everyone say hi to Lily and Keenan. Hi, Lily and Keenan. Okay. Okay. Um, so y'all are going to bed. Okay, good night, kids. Good night. So those are my children. And um, Captain America, like, people keep looking at him. Oh, my gosh. It's Captain America. Oh, my gosh. It's Captain freaking America. And one cop is like, America needs you. And Cap's like, I know. I'm Captain America. And uh, (laughs) so he goes to a hotel and somehow gets a room and um, a boy shows up and he wakes up. He's like, Bucky, it's you. Only you're not Bucky. And he's like, yeah, dude, I'm not Bucky. Why are you calling me Bucky? Stop that. So he's like, we got to find the Avengers. I know you're not Bucky. Maybe Bucky can live again through you. And the kid's like, dude, I'm Rick Jones, and you're really freaking me out. He's like, don't worry. I'm Captain America. And so they go and they hunt for the guy. Because uh, Okay, so what happens is they find pictures of the paparazzi at the scene where the Avengers were. And they find a guy holding, it's not a camera, it's like a flash gun. And like, there's no way that futuristic cameras can look like that. So we got to find this guy. And Rick Jones is like, I have the Teen Brigade, and we haven't really used them since they were introduced to the Incredible Hulk number six. So we're going to be useful. And um, they start hunting all over New York City for a person who meets a written description. Black hair, weird camera flash gun, sunglasses. And like, okay, well, this guy has black hair, but it's not black enough. This guy has sunglasses, but they're not sunny enough. This guy has a weird flash camera, but it's not weird flash enough. And Captain America pokes his head in the window. He's like, oh, look, there he is. He's in that window right there. So he jumps to the window 
and um, they're bad guys. They shoot guns at him, and he grabs the guy with the sunglasses and hunches him, and his face falls off. And underneath his face is an alien. And Captain America's like, I knew you were an alien because no human can have a gun like that. So Alien's like, yeah, I'm from far away and um, I've been living here for like thousands of years. Um, and every time you humans get close to me, I, I use my flash gun at you and I turn you into stone. And um, I was just going to like, you know, live over here by myself. But Submariner says, hey, dude, turn the Avengers into stone. It'll be wicked cool. And Captain America's like, <gasps> Submariner. That sounds familiar, but no time for that. Must rescue the Avengers. I am Captain America. So um, he goes and he has the uh, alien dude turn the Avengers back into Avengers. They're not statues anymore. And they go looking for Submariner. They find the Submariner and a whole bunch of random Atlanteans that he've asked to work for him just like out of nowhere. And so they fight very briefly on like this rocky formation in the middle of the ocean and um, it doesn't last very long. But Captain America is like, first he hangs back and watches the Avengers fight. He's like, ooh, this is a cool team. And then he jumps in and fights Namor. And Namor's like, I've never seen you before. And Captain America's like, I am Captain America. And fights them off. And um, they're like, huh, you want to join our team? And Captain America says, I don't wish to join you. I wish to lead you. <laughs> You're and just that's basically the end. And Rick Jones is like, oh. I miss the Hulk. You're just feeling insecure because your favorite superhero only does superhero stuff for profit. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's just, <laughs> he is so stoic for like so much of this issue. Yes. And it's delightful. But how many times does he refer to himself in the third person? Captain America. <laughs> Not as many times as you did, I don't think, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I poked fun at it, but I love this issue. Yeah, man. Captain America and Submariner are going to have memory problems for the rest of their freaking character lives. Yeah, they starting, really are. Starting right here. Um, and um, and it's funny because like, Captain America is like, I feel like I remember Submariner. Uh-huh. And Norman was like, I'm going to punch your face. <laughs> and it's just like, he, forget about the fact that we teamed up together. He com- He does comment on Cap. What does he say exactly, though? He words it in a way where like... It's weirdly ambiguous, right? Yeah. And I can't remember what he says exactly now. That guy who calls himself Captain America is what he says. He's watching on the view screen or something. Mm-hmm. Now, does he mean that can't be the real Cap because that guy must be dead? Or does he mean I've never heard of this Captain America and this is a dude who's calling himself Captain America a lot? Um, he's. I like the idea that he knows what a Captain America is, mm-hmm. but he doesn't expect to see him again. Mm-hmm. Um. Nothing in the actual Avengers fight indicates one thing or the other. Right. But when he says, my plan has failed, the one who caused himself Captain America has robbed him, robbed me of my victory. This will teach me a lesson. Whatever the Submariner must do, he must do alone. Except he's not alone. He goes and gets some friends. So I talked about Namer before and John Byrne's solution that, you know, unless he gets equal times land and sea, he goes crazy. Mm-hmm. And this this explains his actions in this. Like him just being crazy and like trying to kill um, those natives and just throwing the dude in the ice and attacking the Avengers and not remembering Captain America. You know, he could just be delusional right now. Cap just came out of uh, an icicle, a capsicle. So uh, you could explain away his memory problems too. So it kind of works. 
Yeah, and Kat, we've talked about before. We should probably just like stop talking about how we've talked about it before and just like bring the ideas back again whenever they seem relevant. But um, the the way that Captain America perceives the passage of time mm-hmm. is at best inconsistent. Because mm-hmm. uh, there are times when he's like acting like he just went to sleep and woke up. And there are times when he says things like, you know, I must have been found by some Native Americans and worshipped as an ice god. That must be what happened. And, you know, I just spent all that time in suspended animation. Now here I am. It's just like, okay, how did you know that? Are you just saying that's the most likely turn of events and it happens to be what exactly happened? Because that's really randomly coincidental. Well, you know, I don't think the Avengers ever at any point say you've been frozen for 20 years. Right. But he... At least not on panel. He knows that he's in the future for him. Or the mm-hmm. or the present, so maybe it's like maybe it's like waking up from a dream and you start processing the dream and you realize you know that all that stuff was actually time passing and you sort of remember being stuck in the ice, kind of. Yeah, like he could just like he could morning. perceive that time pass. Like when you wake up in the morning, you know that theoretically six to eight hours have gone by, right? But you don't really experience it per se. You don't really experience, but sometimes, and this happened this morning. Sometimes your your dreams are so intense that for a brief moment it feels like a lot of time has passed. Uh-huh. There's that you too. You wake up and it, it feels like you have built a whole bunch of memories, but they just fade really quickly. That's what happened this morning. It was the weir- it was, it's the weirdest feeling. Um I'm sure it's not the weirdest feeling, but it's really weird. The Captain America block of ice reminds me of the Incredible Hulk deleted scene. Okay. You're aware that in the movie The Incredible Hulk, there's a deleted scene where he's in the north and there is a brief flash of a human form that is red, white, and blue in the ice. I have read that. I have tried to see a clip of that. I can never make out what they're talking about. So I just assume that it's right and I just can't see it. Yeah, we have found it. Okay. It is definitely there. It is definitely vague. Um and the fact that they deleted it means it's not actually part of the canon because mm-hmm. it doesn't really coincide with the stuff they do with the Captain America movie later. But um, but yeah, definitely there. So here's what's interesting about the ice thing for me. I don't think it's addressed how it works until like Mark Grenwald in the 90s comes up with this idea that his super soldier serum crystallizes if he inhales cold water or, you know, freezing cold water or something. Uh-huh. So for 20-something years, did everybody just take it for granted that when someone falls into the ice, they go into suspended animation? Like, did no one say, how did that work? Because um, think about this. The MCU never explains it either. And I don't, I've never met a single person who scoffed at the idea or questioned me about the idea. I'm talking about people who don't know comics that went with me to see these movies. Like, my wife did not later say, that was lame. How did he just freeze and wake up? You know, no one, mm-hmm. no one questions it. So why not? Yeah, I guess when you have the idea that he is somehow a fantastic character because of his strength and his origin story, that he just does that. Mm-hmm. It's just like, okay. But here's the weird thing. Very quickly, very soon, they're going to explain away his super soldier serum. It's not there anymore. Yeah. I remember us talking about that on the show. We're going to keep saying this over and over. Talking about this <laughs> on the show, too. So when we get to that, we'll have to... Figure out what I that's about. I think it's about, in the letters column. Are you, are you still reading letters columns for all these comics or have you stopped? No, I've stopped because all the newness has gone away. So I'm less yeah. interested. But yeah, at some point, Stan like really wants Cap to just be a guy who works really hard, I think. Right. Like, and becomes the epitome of humanity through hard work. Yeah. Um, 
the splash page of this comic is really great, but I'm also like, okay, for real, Henry, can you not just line up like a normal person? <laughs> I love the words, though. I forgot. I've read this a billion times, but I forgot that they actually give Jack Kirby props for like doing Golden Age Captain America, and Stanley's first script was Golden Age Captain America. They like explain it all right here in the beginning. It's neat. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Captain America Comics number three, the text story in that was Stan Lee's first Marvel work. Yeah. So So both these guys, cool. Stan and Jack, started out on No, Jack did probably didn't start out on Captain America, but he invented no, it. He didn't start on Captain America, but it was his first really big break. Yeah, it's his and baby. Whenever he left Marvel, he went around and making other Captain Americas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He and Joe. He made the Guardian and the Newsboy Legion and other stuff. So mm-hmm. um yeah, let's see. The Wasp identifies Captain America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I played with around with it in the synopsis, but why, do you have you ruminated on why she in particular would recognize Cap? She likes cute boys? I don't know. Would she have been more likely to read Captain America comics or see him in old newsreels? <sighs> well, see, that goes back to is Golden Age Marvel what they were reading? Because that's been a theory. Yeah. Because Torch was reading old Submariner comics. Those were old, timely comics that exist in the universe. And if you read Golden Age Captain America, it really doesn't gel with Earth-616 Captain America's flashback of wars, of the war. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, he's not an FBI agent who fights weird tooth magicians and stuff. He fights Nazis. Right. So that could just be like, if you wanted to dismiss it that way, that could just be like the comic, quote-unquote, comic version of the Marvel universe or something that doesn't answer our question about wasp. I have no idea. Um, I like that. She's the one that identifies and she names the Avengers team. She identifies Captain America for having so little to actually do in the comics and the Avengers right now. Mm-hmm. She does some pretty important things. See, so page six where, where they get in a fight. God, they have to fight all the time. Don't they? It's so funny. Um, but page six. And then later he does it again with Rick Jones. I like this, you know, the sad sack cap, but he's not such a sad sack that he won't, like, go to work, you know? Right. So when he has his mask off, it's just a symbol or, you know, symbology or here. But he has his mask off and he's complaining about or whining about uh, Bucky. But then it's like, okay, fine. Enough of this whining. Puts on the outfit. I'm Captain America and I can kick your butts. And then he does. And then later with Rick Jones, it's like, okay, fine. Enough of this whining. This guy thinks I'm crazy. Puts the mask on and says, okay, stupid kid, get to work. And then Rick's like visibly jolted like whoa actually this guy just jumped from being crazy to like a commanding officer mm-hmm. i just thought that was kind of cool it is a cool moment because up until that moment it's a little bit weird between them it, it is weird this is not his finest moment for no. sure and you could write it off to him being a little crazy because again he's been a, a capsicle for 20 years and, I, and i'm happy to do that yeah be, because he's just a little bit like creepy and in Rick's space and it's it's just strange i mean think about um, it he woke he wakes up 20 years later that's got to be weird yeah no yeah it is <laughs> i did wonder when i was reading that one um panel on page 11 he says you know bucky was a close friend of mine he's gone now i was wasting time mourning him but you've suddenly made me realize that life goes on in a way bucky can still live again Mm-hmm. And I don't know what he means by that, except that maybe he was saying that he can't be Cap again because without Bucky, it'd be useless. Mm-hmm. And then he says, maybe Bucky can live again. 
Is that just by him being Cap again? Or is he saying something about Rick? And the reason I'm questioning it, because it seems like Rick is the obvious choice. But later, whenever Rick tries to be Bucky, Cap is like, hell no. Yeah, but see, later, Cap is hopefully more sane. And realizes that sidekicks are a bad idea. Yeah. So right now, he's kind of just grasping onto anything that reminds him of the past and helping him get over, you know, what's a very fresh wound for him. Mm-hmm. Um I think the creepy way to interpret that is he means he wants Rick to be Bucky. But you could be, you could also, like, give him the benefit of the doubt and just mean that, you know, he's going to be Cap again. Right. Because he could be Cap we, without Bucky. It's not that big a deal. I don't think we've talked about the retcon yet. Oh, yeah. Good point. God, see, we take so all this is, stuff for granted and then we don't, I don't yeah, think to talk more, about it. Yeah, this is one of Marvel's biggest retcons. And it really establishes, in retrospect... The way that they were uh, pr- they were treating the Golden Age, mm-hmm. Marvel was not looking to continue an old universe. Marvel was looking to build a u- new universe inspired by and incorporating ideas from their previous work. Um, this is not the Captain America of 1940s comics. This is the Captain America inspired by those adventures. And here's the connective story. Now, as a kid, I always wondered what comic. This whole airplane thing happened in. What <laughs> right, issue? Right. Yeah. Um, it didn't. It didn't happen. And anyone who read this who had been around for a while would have known. This is directly contradicting the comics. So now I want to read the letter pages again to see if anybody complains about that. Yeah. I think reading the letters pages of the Avengers going forward is going to be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, for their reactions to Captain America. Because in the Golden Age, he went... Steve Rogers, numero uno Captain America, the one and only, went through the 50s, well, off and on, up through the 50s. So he didn't disappear in World War II. Bucky gets shot, Golden Girl replaces him, then Bucky comes back, then there's, you know, the commie smasher stuff. That's all supposed to be the one and only Steve Rogers from, you know, Captain America Comics number one. And then Stan does this. Stan decides, nah, forget that. My Captain America disappeared and became a legend. And I'm going to kill Bucky, too, because I hate sidekicks. And it's also very dramatic. Um, you know, points for him on that. Um, and now you've created this retcon. If if the Golden Age is part of this universe, which Marvel eventually decides it is, then this is a ret- this is something that needs to be addressed. And they eventually fix it by creating multiple Captain Americas. So some of those caps you were reading in the Golden Age wasn't really Steve Rogers. It was somebody else. Even multiple Buckys. That's how they fix it. Captain America really did fight vampires dressed as butterflies. Yeah, I guess. So that's how they fix it. But right now, yeah, if you were a Captain America reader, you'd be like, that didn't happen. He was just fighting communists last I read him. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is almost as big as the retcon where, uh, you know, Hank Pym was really married. (laughs) I would say it's bigger than that. Yeah, I know. I was just. Yeah. This is that. That was the biggest retcon we had until this moment. And then, the biggest retcon so far was give Hank a wife. Yeah. And now it's like kill Bucky. And, yeah. Um, the shadowy villain mm-hmm. in uh, the issue there, mm-hmm. I don't know if they even intended to come back to it. But sure enough, a few issues from now, they will come back to this idea. It's actually not that far in the future. It's issue six, I think, of the Avengers. It's really Doctor Doom? Yeah, it's really Doctor Doom. I mean, Electro. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the end of that page, though, as he's sinking into the water, it says, As for me, I didn't care if I lived or died. I struck the water off the coast of Newfoundland and plummeted like a rock with Bucky's face etched before me. 
And that's the last thing I remember. It's interesting that the emotion of this moment in the movie was transferred to Peggy Carter. What do you mean? Well, his dying emotions are about Bucky in the comic and are about Peggy in the thing. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about that. And in the comic, of course, the absence of Bucky is one of Captain America's driving forces for years. Mm -hmm. In the movies, they knew they were going to the Winter Soldier. Yeah, so the next movie, it's resolved. Right. So Captain America has some angst over Bucky, and that's definitely an aspect of that story. But it's not like the huge emotional linchpin of him falling in the water. I oddly didn't feel... I think we reviewed the movie on The Mighty Shield also, but I oddly didn't feel the emotion when Bucky died in First Avenger all that much. It happened so suddenly. It happened so suddenly, and we hadn't had a lot of them time. Right. It was mostly just like this montage of the Howlers fighting... Hydra, but I felt the connection between the two in Winter Soldier a lot. So that was really yeah. weird. Like just somehow by osmosis, it it fixed itself. But here, yeah, in the comic books, this is a big source of problem for him for a long, long time. And this page seven is freaking fantastic, by the way. Yeah, it's a really, really great page. Yeah. And the first panel, especially the third panel, especially um, oh, even the explosion and like it's all red and his eyes are closed and he doesn't even know what's going on. And then the big like shot of him falling into the ocean. It's great. Great and mythology. I feel like I've seen, I've seen tellings of this that show like his perspective as he's falling there. Like he's looking up and you see the explosion above him. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know where I've read that, but I feel like they've told it that way before. It's really, really good. Yeah. And um, the teen brigade comes back. And like I said, this is even though they were. In the Avengers number one, Mm -hmm. they didn't do a whole lot there. Well, they didn't do a whole lot here either. Well, no, they went around looking for the bad guy. Yeah, and they didn't find him. They didn't find him, but they tried. I I mean, they were involved. They were involved in the story. The story revolved around them for like a very short time, which is the most they have done since the Incredible Hulk 6. Remember, they they built his cardboard gun. They never get like the Rick Jones and the Team Brigade comic book, huh? No. Hmm, No, they don't. (laughs) And it's weird how the Team Brigade, like, fades away and then like comes back unexpectedly okay it's just like like we haven't seen them since issue one before that we hadn't seen this since the incredible Hulk 6. oh yeah i see what you're they're, saying they're and they're going to be showing up less frequently as time goes forward but every now and then it's like oh yeah remember the teen brigade that's still a thing i thought they were more prominent than this i guess not huh because they do talk about them in like the 80s right? and stuff i've read it feels like they should be but they weren't yeah weird and then uh, amazing, but, um, amazing sixties Kirby cat fighting, which is my mm-hmm. favorite thing in the world. But you know, you can't really comment about that. I guess the weird part about this is you know the celery alien, and also um, so pages fourteen and fifteen are probably the weirdest part. Celery alien, celery stock alien, and Namer just randomly finding a platoon of people that are loyal to him, kind of off panel even in a way. Like yeah, that was pretty slapped together. Both of those happen really oddly. And Cap is just chill with aliens, which actually does kind of go in line with the (laughs) Captain America comic stories. Yeah, true. Because if you've not read Captain America comics, okay, Captain America comics is almost like we have these steady characters that we can reuse over and over to tell really weird comics horror stories. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of Cap is horror. Yeah. Um. With just the recurring characters of Cap and Bucky. Well, I mean, so, look at his main fact, character or his main villain. Right? The Red Skull. That's some, that, and that, that first Red Skull story is creepy weird. Yeah. But that's where he um, comes from is those kind of stories. 
right. creepy, not, red-skulled-faced weirdo guy. He's not the uh, epitome Nazi. He's no. like a really creepy character. Goes around drugging people and then makes them think they're dying from his horrible stare. Right. Yeah. Is he also the one who does the whistle of death or, or like plays the fugue of some? I don't know. Anyways, um, <laughs> so he's Captain America is totally chill with aliens. Uh-huh. And then Namor, he says, a troop of my elite guard. They have not deserted me. They're still searching for me. They see me. They're turning. They bow in loyal acknowledgement of my imperial presence. Uh-huh. And now Prince Namor is no longer alone. So all this is happening in dialogue. In the art, he sees people swimming by. Yeah. In one panel. And that's it. Yeah. So that was really weird. They yeah. they were just looking for ways to get Namor to have more people to fight the Avengers, I guess. Since the whole yeah, because that's kind of what you need is you need more people to fight the Avengers. Because if Namor is the only one, then he's gonna be taken out really quickly. Also, they just did this last issue, so they can't just have the same fight again. No, Hulk is gone, so he needs help. Um, I love this bit. I don't. I just made fun of this myself in my own head. But page sixteen, they're trying to rescue the alien ship so that he's not blackmailed by Namor anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And Thor requests a camera to go down there, and Thor uses magnetism and transistors to like lift it out. And Iron Man's standing behind him, and I just thought in my head, like, but that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what the hell? Why is Thor <laughs> using technology? I know. That was a little weird. That seemed like an Iron Man moment right there to have Iron Man figure out how to lift this thing out of the muck of the ocean. And I don't think Iron Man believes that it's going to work. Because on the next page, he's like, it worked. Mm-hmm. You freed the ship, Thor. If this was ha- if this was Tales of Spence, Iron Man would have just had some rocket propulsion things in his belt that he attached to the thing, and it would come right out. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I feel like I was going to say something, that I lost it. Uh, yeah, never mind. So they free the guy's ship, mm-hmm. and the Atlanteans are just there. Yeah, they put up a fight, kind of, but mostly they're looking to their leader to do most of the fighting. Right, and the Wasp actually gets a cool moment. Yeah, I was which just almost never say, happens. Has that happened in Avengers yet? Um, she's been foiled a lot of times. I don't know if she's actually had a moment to be cool or not. She saves Iron Man by by spinning around Submariner's face and being annoying. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. Which is exactly kind of the kind of thing she should be doing right now. I mean, there's more she can be doing, but getting in the way of the fight and distracting the bad guys so the good guys can win, that's a great way to use her skills. But what's even cooler is the next page when we find out that Thor is single-handedly taking on his entire platoon by himself. (laughs) That's awesome. As only Kirby Thor can do it. So Submariner can't lift the, um, the hammer from the ground. No. And he's surprised that even his more-than-human power cannot raise it. Uh-huh. But Thor... Okay, so check this out. The hammer's just sitting there. Uh-huh. Thor has clearly stated in his own comic that the cam- the hammer only flies back to him when he throws it. Yeah. This is the first and time. And just on the ground, and he holds his hand out, and it comes to him. This is the first time he's just summoned it. Yeah. I hope that continues, because we all know he can do that, so it's silly. Maybe he has to be close to it. Maybe it's like the remote control and he works from a certain distance. Yeah, maybe. What do you think of Cap like not really fighting the entire thing? I was kind of cool with it. Yeah, it makes sense. He's like scoping out these heroes to see how it works and they don't need him. They don't seem to need him. They're doing okay. And he's kind of thinking to himself like, I don't even know what these guys can do or who's what. So it was kind of a cool strategic moment to just kind of sit there and figure out their powers. And then he leapt in when he needed to. 
when oh he right. left in when Rick Jones was okay. I thought that was a bad move on Namer's part. Namer normally is like kind of heroic in his um, badness, but taking Rick Jones as hostage and threatening him that was kind of icky. Uh, I like to think he wouldn't have actually hurt Rick Jones, but he was using it as a bargaining chip. Yeah. Uh, what he's trying to achieve with that bargaining chip, I'm not entirely sure. I've actually kind of lost why they're even fighting here. Does Namor just not want them to take the ship? Namor wants to kill the Avengers because I think last, oh, he's, last time yeah, he tried... It's vengeance now, isn't it? It's vengeance this time, but the first time we were wondering why he wanted to kill the Avengers because usually he's a Fantastic Four villain. Right. But it was, I think... When he and the Hulk fought the Avengers, he said something like, I need to take the Avengers out so that I can take over the world. Which is random because, again, uh, Fantastic Four, but okay. But it's not wrong. I mean, if he's going to try to take over the world, he does need to get rid of all the superheroes. So getting rid of the Avengers is good. So this part is just revenge for being humiliated in the last issue. Or like the fight never really ended. He just ran away and they're still fighting. Page 22, panel 3. Submariner picks up Cap and looks like he's going to throw him. And Cap's thinking, he's stronger than me, but I'll find a way to outmaneuver him. And that's the epitome of Captain America right there, the end. Yeah. He doesn't because it's over after that. But still, I've always liked that panel because to me, that's like, that's his thought process. That's his Cap factor. That's how he beats people who are more powerful than him. A good, positive, patriotic attitude. And Giant Man is all, Namor's gone. I think we're going to meet him again. I don't know if they actually do meet him again. I think the X Men are the next ones to meet um, Namor, um, but, but it's like, but one of us is still not present, and that's when Janet flies. And I thought you'd never notice. I was just powdering my nose, what any girl would be doing. <laughs> yep. And then he joins we, the team. He joins the team, and I did you did you catch my Robin Hood reference? No. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I came to not to join you, but to lead you. Oh, well. He's not as arrogant as that, but um, he will end up leading them, I assume, fairly quickly. Although, Well, they do the whole like rotating chairmanship. Yeah, they don't have a leader right now, really, do they? No. No. But Fantastic Four clearly like having a leader because they had a whole issue about it. So maybe they'll start doing the leader thing pretty soon. I know he becomes leader once the rotation changes or the, you know, the the main guys all leave. But that's a while from now. 16, I think. And I think in the field... Even if they have the whole chairman thing going on in the field, Captain America is like, he calls the shots. That's definitely a thing they've done. I know, like, in Busick's run, they even made a point of saying, like, we could have rotating chairman, but, you know, out in battle. Which mm-hmm. makes sense, because he's Mr. Master Strategist and stuff. So, who would you listen to, right? But let's talk about these last two panels. Okay. There is one whose heart is still heavy, still filled with a dread fear. He's the greatest guy I've ever met. And I can tell he wants me to be his partner. But what about the Hulk? He's sure to return someday. And when he finds out that Captain America has replaced him, will anything be able to stop him then? Okay, so a couple things. Rick Jones thinks that Cap wants him to be his partner. And, and, I, and I think from earlier in the story, that really seemed to be what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when Cap, but you said earlier, like when Cap gets his faculties together, he decides that having Bucky is not a good idea. Right. Which makes sense. Why, why have another guy killed under your wing right yeah and i've said on previous episodes whenever they had the hulk run off from the team i don't think they were planning on bringing back captain america i think that by the time they did issue three that was probably in their minds Mm -hmm. because they set up the ending for issue three to lead into issue four or maybe they didn't maybe they just took advantage of where they were in issue three to do issue four um but now we're definitely saying the hulk has been replaced 
by Captain America on the team. Mm -hmm. And so I think at this point, the idea of the Hulk being on the team has been written off. They don't need him anymore. But they made a point of giving two panels dedicated to the Hulk, so they probably still want to do something with him. Yeah, Whereas, that's, you know, sometimes we feel like they didn't want to do anything with him anymore. Because now they go on a search for the Hulk. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take us to the next couple of issues, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where we start to follow the narrative of the Avengers through other books. They're going to be in the Fantastic Four. Well, they're going to fight the Hulk again real soon. Is that issue five with the yeah, Lava Man? I think so. Yeah, Hulk's with the Lava Man. But before, I think before we get to issue five, we have the Fantastic Four, 25 and 26. That's where they fight the Hulk, isn't it? I don't know. We'll yeah, find the Hulk out. And the Fantastic- yeah, we'll figure out as we go. But the thing is, like after Hulk number six, we kind of felt like they were written off the character altogether. And then they put him on this team and they kind of don't know how to make him gel with the team. And But they're still giving him, you know, like hints that he's going to make it back. Now, do you think that Rick is full of himself thinking that the Hulk would care if Rick isn't around when he comes back? Hulk, Hulk um, doesn't like Rick, or does Hulk he? Hulk does not like Rick. No. But may, maybe he's gotten used to having Rick around. Yeah. Or um, maybe he knows that the Hulk might not like him, but he's certainly going to be jealous. You know what? Hulk is the abusive boyfriend. <laughs> I figure Hulk would come back and say, you can't replace me on this team with that pipsqueak. He'd get more upset about that than Rick Jones being gone. But who knows? Rick Jones is the codependent lover and like... <clears throat> Feels like he's very valued, and yet he's also being abused. And yet the abusive, jealous boyfriend, even though he doesn't like having Rick around, definitely doesn't want Rick going off with any other partners. Yeah. Okay, this is way too weird. Yeah, I don't know. Say something. Say something else. Well, I just don't like. I don't. I, I guess they work together somewhat harmoniously, but it always seemed like Hulk was upset with Rick's presence. So it's weird for yeah. Rick to sit here worrying about whether the Hulk would be upset. Maybe he's worried about about not feeling guilty anymore about trying to help the Hulk because he wants to go hang out with Cap now. Could be. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have certainly done, I think, the return of Captain America justice. Yeah, the Avengers are now set. Like, I don't know, those first three issues with the Hulk and stuff, they're okay and everything, but I always knew that that's a transitional thing that's not going to happen. And now you got a guy who can be up front and look good on the covers. Mm-hmm. And he's like... He's great. He's like not the most powerful guy on the team. In fact, more often than not, he's the least powerful guy on the team, unless you have like a Hawkeye or something on there. But he's the leader. So it's a cool like dichotomy. And he's, you know, got the whole Golden Age history. So he's got all that under his belt. And, you know, he's dressed in red, white, and blue. So it's just a great um, leader to put on a team that was kind of, I felt like, floundering around. It really solidifies them. Well, shall we, uh, shall we do our wrap-ups? Yep. All right. Well, next episode, we're going to be continuing into January 1964, as we usually do with some more of our superhero fun. But this episode, we want to say thank you to some people who've been following us out there on the social media. So on Twitter, uh, we have received follows from Darcy Vachon, which is Poet EM Audit 67. The revolutionary artist is nothing like the bourgeois archetype of the dreamy romantic artist. He is savage, methodical, and incessant. It's a Pablo Picasso quote. That's kind of heavy for a Twitter profile, dude. <laughs> I didn't even understand it. Well, shh. go look at our Twitter and you'll find it. Okay. <laughs> Alejandro Legarda at Alex Legarda has followed us. Thank you, Alejandro. Gregory Litchfield, at Greg Litchfield, a comic book reader and collector for 47 years. 
Um, oh, I started another Twitter and I followed us through that Twitter. Mm-hmm. So if you go to at it's Wanda time, a lot of my thoughts on the Scarlet Witch as I read through them for this podcast are get, get posted there. I only do like one or two tweets a day to kind of space it out. Um, but you can go to at it's Wanda time and see. Basically, I'm just going to kind of, as we go through her life story, I'm going to tweet my thoughts with pictures on there. Lots of, um, lots of Scarlet Witch love it at It's Wanda Time or search the Scarlet Witching Hour. Uh, longtime Facebook friend and podcast supporter Angus Livingstone has followed us on Twitter. The guy who used to publish my, um, Avengers Inspirations podcast and the one who does the complete Marvel Reading Order website, which is an invaluable tome of information. He's also split off and done a whole lot of other reading order websites. So Travis Starnes, at T Starnes, go follow him. He's following us and he is doing, um, he is doing Lee's work out there in the, uh, in the internets. Um, Iowa's Joe, at GA Joe 74. He's a dad and a comic reader who's been, uh, I think he had another Twitter handle that he was following us for in a long time. But, um, and finally, John McLeod, John McLeod, 19 student of life and lover of the arts, music, theater, cinema, and photography. So thank you very much for following us on Twitter. Please do continue to retweet our episodes and share them on Facebook. If you like us on Facebook gets us out there in your circles, where can they find us, Mike? At MakeOursMarvel.com. There you will find all the links to the uh, various player-type things that you can use to play a podcast. Uh, and you'll find our episodes. You can play right there on the post itself. And you can use our contact form to write us a letter or just write to podcast at MakeOursMarvel.com. Keep them coming because every so often we do a uh, mailbag episode where we read your comments and... and uh, talk about them all right so i guess we'll be back next time and look forward to that and until then and until that green-haired broccoli-headed alien guy goes home and his entire planet is destroyed by one of the x-men make ours marvel marvel.